You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to Heart Sounds for June 2022. This is the podcast where I tell you about some of the top news published on TCTMD.com over the last few weeks and play you a few audio clips from the interviews the TCTMD journalists did to pull together their stories. Most of us at TCTMD spent the month chasing down ideas that we picked up at the main meetings, and I'll definitely mention some of these. But stay tuned, too, because some of these are still percolating, and we're hoping for a few slower news days this summer so we can sink our teeth into some longer-form stories in the months to come. Let's jump in. I have been waiting for two years at this point for something other than COVID-19 to dominate healthcare headlines in the U.S., but never in my wildest nightmares did I think it would be overturning access to abortion that has been in place for nearly half a century. Last month, I mentioned on the podcast that Todd Neal had written a feature story about how cardiovascular care would be affected if Roe versus Wade was overturned in the U.S., One of the physicians Todd spoke to for this feature was Jennifer Haith, director of the Cardio-Obstetrics Program at New York Presbyterian and Columbia University. You can find Todd's story by searching abortion on TCTMD. There's a sentence I thought I'd never utter. Uh, But when the news dropped last week that the Supreme Court had followed through, Todd reached back out again to Haith. Here's part of what she had to say. I think that my reaction is like probably so many millions of other people in the country that this is a devastating blow to women's rights to autonomy, uh, women's right to choose, and the general health and well-being of women. I could come up with probably an endless supply of scenarios where the reason for someone wanting to terminate a pregnancy is completely logical and understandable, whether it's psychological, emotional, medical. uh, We know that actually legal induced abortion is about 14 times safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Pregnancy is not a safe thing. It's a beautiful thing and it's an amazing thing, but it's not a safe period of a woman's life. And for a woman to decide to go through that, that needs to be her choice and decision. And for so many different reasons, women get pregnant. This is a, a process that involves more than one person. And if someone decides that they can't continue for whatever reason, be it you know they have a severe underlying medical disease, they have a severe underlying psychiatric condition, they don't have the money to pay for another child, they were uh, impregnated from a rape or incest or because they are 14 years old or 15 years old and made a mistake or they're in college or they don't want to have a child. Whatever their reason is, uh, is should be valid. And women in this country should be respected to make that decision. And so I am as devastated as so many others. And I think also most Americans actually support the right to choose. You know, the, the time at which termination can or can't happen has generally been agreed upon to be viability. But I think that this decision isn't just talking about that. It was it's banning this is a constitutional right overall. And I think that from a medical perspective, this will be devastating 
to an already high maternal mortality rate in this country and will be particularly devastating for women who are minorities who are already suffering from the highest rates of maternal mortality and morbidity. So as a cardiologist who takes care of pregnant women with cardiovascular diseases, there are numerous underlying cardiovascular conditions that put women at very high risk of death or severe morbidity uh, in pregnancy. And deciding to terminate a pregnancy because of an underlying medical decision is hard for anyone, uh, but to take away that right is almost ensuring certain death for some women with some underlying medical problems, and that is very disturbing. Speaking of COVID-19 making headlines, that happened too, of course. The entire TCTMD team was at different in-person meetings last month, and we all came home wondering what COVID-19 transmissions might have been like at those conferences, particularly when mask wearing was very uh, limited. TCTMD's Yael Maxwell spoke with a range of physicians who traveled to meetings in Europe and the U.S., and she posed the question to them, was it, and is it, worth it? I'll play you two audio clips Yael provided for the podcast, both of which have been edited for clarity. The first is Shelley Zeroth of the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. The other is John Tierlink of the University of California, San Francisco. Both of them tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 after attending the ESC heart failure meeting in Madrid. There's no doubt it was a major inconvenience to my colleagues, a major inconvenience to my family as well, and to my patients. So was it worth it? I don't want to disappoint the other people involved, including my colleagues, patients, and family, by saying professionally it seemed worth it. Personally, it wasn't. It's hard, right? Yeah. Uh, That's a hard one. Uh, Will it stop me from going to ESC in August? Absolutely not. I will be more diligent, and I will have had a booster by then as well, which typically they recommend three months after an infection here. So I will be perhaps a little more diligent with my mask use because I I don't want this to happen again. I do believe it should be a personal choice and people have to, everybody has different baseline risks and and that that can't be legislated by any any overall institution it needs to be kind of done from everybody's personal perspective i'd say that you know i'm not that negative about the experience it was not fun it's not something i would actively choose to do in a high probability or moderate probability setting mm-hmm. And I know we as humans are very bad at thinking probabilistically. We look at, well, I came down with this COVID, so it must have been horrible decision, right? <clears throat> but before I went, I made the decision saying, well, you know, there, I knew there was a chance that I could get it, <clears throat> but I thought the chance was relatively low likelihood given that I was going to mask all the time and all that stuff. And it just totally happened that <laughs> low probability does not mean no probability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Keeping with heart failure for a moment, you have heard me speak on the podcast before about the groundswell of support for the so-called four-pillar approach to heart failure care, at least for reduced ejection fraction patients, first expert opinion, then clinical guidelines. But as many people have pointed out to TCTMD in the past, it is all very well and good recommending that the four evidence-based HF medications be started as soon as possible. It's quite another to be sure that people can afford them. Laura McEwen covered a study published in JAK this month showing that many patients end up paying more than $2,000 a year out of pocket for their HF meds. That includes just under $1,000 for an ARNI and roughly the same for an SGLT2 inhibitor. Laura spoke with lead author Camille Faridi of Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, who had this to say. We know that financial toxicity has implications in terms of psychological stress, stress related to food or housing insecurity and all these things. So I think it's important to be mindful of you know what the exact costs for patients in terms of out-of-pocket expenses are when we're prescribing those medications and what implications they may have on uh, individual patients' lives. And they, that will probably vary uh, from patient to patient. We've done a lot of stories over the years about TAVR's evolution towards a minimalist same-day procedure, which would have been unthinkable for aortic stenosis back in the always-surgical era. As TCTMD's Michael O'Riordan reported this month, investigators at the Cleveland Clinic have been applying the same approach to minimalist valve-in-valve transcatheter mitral valve replacement, or TMVR. This is not TMVR for the native valve, I should point out, that is a procedure still at a more nascent stage of innovation and development. But for putting a replacement mitral valve device inside a failed surgical valve, Amar Krishnaswamy and colleagues have demonstrated in 42 patients that using conscious sedation or monitored anesthesia care in addition to TTE allows for the safe and relatively seamless implantation of a new transcatheter device in an older surgical valve. Krishnaswamy told Mike that while the lengths of stay reported in Jack, cardiovascular interventions for patients treated with the minimalist approach were shorter than for patients who underwent general anesthesia, and those times also declined over the eight-year study period, their current practice at the Cleveland Clinic is even shorter, same day or next day discharge. Here's part of their conversation. When I speak to colleagues and friends at other institutions, they're intrigued by the idea of it. Uh, I am hopeful that uh, seeing this in print will lend a little bit more credence to the subjective conversations that right. we've had. I think it's simply a natural evolution of what all of us in interventional cardiology do, which is to do things less invasively uh, and uh, you know, sort of more minimalistically, which I think is important for, for the patient. In our center, this minimalist approach, as described in the paper, uh, is our default strategy. The only time that we use general anesthesia for these procedures is if the patient was in extremis and intubated already, right? not for the sake of the procedure. And all of these patients who come to us for treatment as an outpatient are discharged the same evening as long as the procedure is completed before uh, 12 p.m. It's so 
poignant, especially for the patients, mm. because all of these have already undergone a cardiac surgery. Right. So they know what it's like to have an open heart surgery and what that recovery is and what that hospital stay is. And so to tell them that we have now replaced their valves and they're going home six hours later <laughs> is completely mind-blowing because they know the comparator. Before we heard rumblings in early 2020 of a virus outbreak in Wuhan, China, TCTMD's Caitlin Cox pitched the idea of a feature story on the impact of climate change on cardiology. She'd done several interviews by the time the pandemic was declared, but after some soul-searching, we agreed. Writing about existential threats, urgent as the climate crisis was and is, seemed out of step with the more immediate confusion and fears COVID-19 was producing at the time. Fast forward two years in which many of us have started to think more and more about how viral outbreaks like this one and climate change intersect and amplify each other. Caitlin delved back into her feature story and we ran it earlier this month. You can find it by searching the word climate on TCTMD and I hope you'll check it out. For now, here's part of Caitlin's conversation with cardiologist and health economist Dhruv Kazi of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School in Boston. When you look at it through the cardiology lens, there are at least three or four different mechanisms that directly affect cardiovascular outcomes. There is the direct physiologic effect on cardiovascular disease related to heat, related to wildfire, smoke exposure, those being the big ones. Yeah. There is the mental health aspect of it, and I think we're kind of yeah. underestimating the effect of climate change anxiety or the stress related to acute severe weather events and its relationship to cardiovascular disease. The third is the infrastructural damage, which we know is substantial. We've seen this. and. It's really important that we understand that a storm may last a few days, but its impact on healthcare and cardiovascular outcomes can last years. Mm. And we're seeing this after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and we've seen it elsewhere that particularly people with high, high needs, cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, yeah. see worse outcomes. And then the fourth is in the very long term, I don't think as a country, but uh, even, but certainly as a planet, that we're yeah. prepared for the changes that are coming rapidly down the pike in terms of climate-related migration and infrastructural needs. That is it for Heart Sounds this month. Thank you to our producer, Daniel Goodman, as well as the whole news team for their stellar work, as always. That's not just my opinion. If you missed it, three reporters at TCTMD were recognized this month with Digital Health Awards in the Media Publications category for stories they wrote in 2021. Laura McEwen won a gold for her story, Unseen and Unheard, in the cath lab, anti-racism efforts fall short. Yael Maxwell won a bronze for her feature entitled Expired Cardiac Devices May Do Global Good But Safety Unknown. Todd Neal won a merit prize for his feature story Reports of Sudden Deaths Among Athletes After COVID-19 Vax Are Misinformation. Last but not least, a guest blogger for our off-script blog, 
Sedril Montaha Istanbuli, won silver for her first-person piece about following her dream of becoming a physician while living through Syria's civil war. Her blog is entitled, Even in the Depths of Hell, It's Still Possible to Dream. That is probably a good reminder for the times we're living through in different ways. I hope you'll go back and read those stories, as well as all the news and features we publish. If you don't want to miss out on breaking news and thoughtful, in-depth cardiology reporting, bookmark our homepage and subscribe to our twice-weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at the bottom of the homepage at tctmd.com. Thanks for listening to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD, featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.